Give us one hour and we'll help you change the way you think about happiness. Harvesting happiness with Lisa Cypress Kamen is fresh, optimistic, and purpose-driven talk radio that promotes happiness from the inside out. Each week, Lisa spotlights trendsetters and change agents who offer sound emotional fitness tips for improving mental muscle tone and greater well-being. Guest experts include a diverse and proactive collection of the greatest thinkers and doers who are devoting their lives to creating a better world in which to live. Your host, Lisa Cypress Kamen, is a widely recognized applied positive psychology coach, author, documentary filmmaker, and lecturer specializing in the fields of sustainable happiness, mindfulness, and positive lifestyle management. Let's get to it. Here's Lisa. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, wherever you are. Welcome to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio, broadcasting consciously prepared brain food from the beaches of Malibu, California. Each week, we explore the very serious business of happiness, sustainable well-being, and human flourishing. We are not talking about the annoying yellow smiley face. Mm -mm -mm. We are talking about something much deeper and critical to the success of humanity. Authentic happiness is not selfish, egotistical, or narcissistic. In fact, it is essential in order for humankind to thrive. Sustainable happiness is important because it not only elevates our own well-being locally, but also contributes to collective global flourishing. The achievement of a happy life is not only positively good for us, it is constructively good for those around us. In short, happiness matters. Happiness comes from the heart, and this show is most definitely all about the heart. Today we are focusing on having it all and being super productive without running yourself ragged. And we're revisiting a favorite from the library that originally aired in July of 2015. Let's join the conversation with William Urey. William Urey is the co-founder of Harvard's program on negotiation. He is one of the world's best known and most influential experts on the Art of Negotiation. He is the co-author of Getting to Yes, the best-selling negotiation book in the world, which I have read a long time ago and love, and has taught negotiation to tens of thousands of people around the world. He has served as a mediator in conflicts ranging from boardroom battles to labor strikes and from family feuds to civil wars. His newest book is Getting to Yes with Yourself and Other Worthy Opponents. Good morning, William. Thanks for joining us. It's a real pleasure, Lisa. Oh, it's, it, it, it's a delight to have you here. Let's talk about how you leveraged your experience in mediating, mediating boardroom battles, labor strikes, civil wars, etc., um, and brought it to a very personal experience, the, to the domain of self, how to get to yes within ourselves. Well, yes. Uh, after Roger Fisher and I wrote Getting to Yes many years ago, maybe the most common question I received from people was, okay, I want to get to yes, but what if the other side, my partner, my, my colleague, uh, they don't want to get to yes? And so what if they're being difficult? So I wrote a book later on, many years later, called Getting Past No, about how you negotiate with difficult people or in difficult situations. But over the years, it gradually dawned on me that actually perhaps the most difficult person we ever have to deal with, in other words, the person who creates the greatest obstacles to our own satisfaction, to our own happiness, as it were, 
is not the person on the other side of the table, however difficult they may be. It's ourselves. It's, it's, we are our own worst opponent, and that gives us the opportunity to become our own best ally. And that if we can get to yes with ourselves first uh, and reach that kind of inner satisfaction, it becomes a lot easier for us to deal with other people in however difficult a situation it might be. In your latest book, Getting to Yes with Yourself and Other Worthy Opponents, you talk about six fundamental steps of the inner yes method that can help us get there to that affirmative place with ourselves and others. Can you just sort of unpack those six points for us? For sure. And I'll just begin by saying there's a foundation to all of this, to all six steps, which is... Uh, I call it the ability to go to the balcony. And it's almost as if you're dealing, you're talking with that other person. And incidentally, when I talk about negotiation, I'm not just referring to what most people think of as like formal negotiations. You're in a sales or it's a labor negotiation. But I'm talking about the everyday experience we all have. Every single one of us is a negotiator every single hour of the day, whether we're negotiating with our, dealing with our child or our spouse or our partner or a person on the street or another driver. I mean, in the broader sense of the term, we're, we're negotiating. In other words, trying to reach agreement on some issue, however small, you know, most of our time. And so uh, to me, the foundation of being able to get to the yes that we want, in other words, the kinds of agreements, the kinds of healthy relationships we want with others, is this ability to imagine that it's almost like you're on a stage and part of you, part of your mind goes to a mental and emotional uh, balcony overlooking that stage. It, the balcony is a place of perspective. It's a place of calm. It's a place of clarity. It's a place where you can keep your eyes on the prize on what is truly most important to you. And to me, the foundation of being able to get to yes with yourself is this ability to go to the balcony. And we all have many ways of doing it. Some of us may take a moment of silence, and then some of us may meditate, some of us may go for a walk, some of us may go for uh, a tea or a coffee with a friend, but we all need ways to constantly in our lives to go to the balcony. Why? Because we're reaction machines. We tend to react often under stress, and particularly in these days, you know, with so many things going on simultaneously, we tend to react in ways that don't serve our interests, hence the importance of going to the balcony. Mm. So put yourself in time out. That's what I hear you saying. That's it. <laughs> That's Give absolutely a little it. minute. That's it. <laughs> step one, time out. That's step, it. Step two. Step two is, uh, you know, in negotiation, in getting to yes, you know, what I've been teaching for a long time is, you know, maybe the single most important skill. People ask me, you know, what's the most important thing that you need when you're trying to get to yes with someone? And you know, if I had to pick one, I usually pick, well, it's the ability to put yourself in their shoes and understand the way they see and feel the situation. Because after all, negotiation is an exercise in influence. You're trying to change the other side's mind. How can you possibly change their mind if you don't know where their mind is? So put yourself in their shoes. It also shows respect. So it's, it, it goes a long ways. But what I found is it's actually very hard for us, particularly in conflict situations, to put ourselves in the other side's shoes. We're so wrapped up in our problems, we can't focus on their problem. 
as, as important as that might be. So the problem is, the obstacle again, is ourselves. And what I found, curiously enough, is that the key to putting yourself in the other side's shoes is, interestingly enough, to put yourself in your own shoes first. I mean, that sounds funny because, after all, are we not already in our own shoes? But how many of us can honestly say that we listen empathetically to our needs, our feelings, uh, what we most want, the way that a good friend would? Instead, what I find is we have this little critical voice, this inner critic inside of us that's always putting us down, saying, you did that wrong, that's not going to work, and so on, you know. There's an old saying that if we talk to our friends the way we talk to ourselves, we wouldn't have any. <laughs> and so the key to me is this ability to put ourselves in our own shoes, to listen to ourselves, to figure out what we want. That's the key to uh, getting to yes with yourself. And I think you make a very, very valuable point that it, it, it requires that we go to the balcony or put ourselves in timeout, whatever whatever terminology or image works for the individual, so you can tap into this place of really deciphering what it is that you want to really understand that the mind chatter that goes on in so many of our minds are they're just thoughts and not necessarily the desires or wants or needs of the situation. That's absolutely it. I find, I mean, so often, particularly in conflictual situations, and we have these kind of daily conflicts and tensions and difficult conversations all the time, uh, you know, we get wrapped up in our thoughts and our feelings. You know, often, you know, we, we're governed by anger uh, or by fear. And as the old saying goes, when angry, you will make the best speech you will ever regret. <laughs> and that happens more often than not, I'm afraid. Yeah, and I also believe and witness that we can't always believe everything we think and feel. That's it. That's it. And that's why if you can take a balcony perspective, if that's the kind of the foundation, then you're able to recognize your anger, your fear, your thought, and you even have a dialogue with it, but you realize it's not you. It's that's that's the part of you that's acting on the stage, but 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 the part of you that's watching it, that's witnessing it, that's observing it. You're able to to neutralize its effect on you by simply recognizing it. You talk about developing your inner batna. Um, what is the batna, and where does this power come from? Well, your batna in negotiation. This is the secret to power. You know, how, where, where does power come from in negotiation? In other words, I'm not saying power over the other side, but power to actually satisfy your interests to get what you need. Uh, interestingly enough, in negotiation, maybe the central source of power is what we call your BATNA, your best alternative to a negotiated agreement. It's a it's an acronym, and uh, and so it's like you know it's it's your alternative, your walk away alternative. If you can't reach agreement with one customer, for example, it might be I've got another customer. If you can't reach agreement on one job, maybe you've got another job. Having that alternative gives you confidence and gives you power. What I found is actually there's a psychological antecedent to your BATNA, which I call your inner BATNA, which is <laughs> your own ability to tell yourself, to reassure yourself that no matter what, you will take care of your core psychological needs, that you're not wholly dependent on the other side. And when you're not wholly dependent on the other side, 
then you can relax, you have more power, and you're going to negotiate a lot more effectively if you know that inside yourself you have that confidence. And where does that confidence come from ultimately? It comes from within. Mm. Boom, there it is. Do me a favor and repeat the uh, definition of the acronym BATNA for our listeners. Yeah, BATNA is best alternative to a negotiated agreement. It's your your BATNA. It's a really useful term. Think about before you go into any situation, what's my alternative? How am I going to, what's my best course of action if I cannot reach agreement with the other side? If you know you have an alternative, you're going to be a lot more relaxed, a lot more confident, and you're going to negotiate more confidently. Developing that, knowing that both your inner BATNA, your own ability to meet your own core needs, and your outer BATNA will serve you greatly. We are going to negotiate ourselves over for a quick break. To learn more, please visit www.williamury.com. On Facebook, William Yuri GTY, and on Twitter at William Yuri GTY. We know that life can be tough and that happiness can and does live alongside adversity. Connect with us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and follow Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen for a daily dose of inspiration. We'll be right back after this quick break. Do you find yourself saying things like, I'll be happy when, or I'll be happy if? Does the finish line for happiness keep moving? Does the bar keep getting higher? What's getting in the way of your happiness right now? Too much going on? Working too much? Not working enough? Having too many responsibilities? Not having enough money, enough time, enough space? The list goes on and on. It becomes difficult to see all that we have if we focus on scarcity. One thing I know for certain, happiness waits for no one. And sometimes we all need support. Are We Happy Yet? is not another self-help book. It's a guidebook for learning how to harvest happiness through self-mastery, which is the key ingredient into building resilience, hardiness, grit, and emotional stability. Are We Happy Yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life is available at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, IndieBound, and HarvestingHappiness.com. Each day we get to choose how we are going to show up for life. And at times we need tips for strengthening our well-being. Learn training strategies for greater emotional fitness and improved mental muscle tone at HarvestingHappiness.com. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. If you're just joining us now, we are continuing the conversation about having it all and being super productive without running yourself ragged with my guest, William Yuri. This show originally aired in 2015. Let's rejoin the conversation. And with me in the studio is William Yuri, co-founder of Harvard's program on negotiation. He is also the author, one of the co-authors of Getting to Yes. His most recent is Getting to Yes with Yourself and Other Worthy Opponents, published by Harper One. William, to carry on our conversation coming out of the BATNA, Best Alternative to a Negotiated Agreement, um, you talk about another um, step is reframing the picture. Let's talk about that. Maybe the greatest power, Lisa, one of the greatest powers we have as a negotiator 
is the ability to reframe. In other words, change the way that change the but change the game. Basically, if you want to change the game in negotiation from you know an adversarial argument into a win-win, uh, constructive problem-solving. Let's solve the problem. Let's heal the relationship. If you want to change the game, the, maybe the best way is to change the frame, to change the way in which the you know to change, for example, from being on opposite sides of a table as opponents glaring across the table to you're both on the same side of the table, you know, jointly tackling the problem rather than attacking each other. So if you want to reframe that, that's the key, but people find it very hard, particularly when in difficult situations. And again, what I find is there's a missing piece that is inside of us, which is our own ability to reframe the picture because we can, for example, I think it was Albert Einstein who once said that the most important question that any of us has to answer in our lives is, is the universe friendly? Now, why would Albert Einstein ask that question? Because in the wake of World War II and the creation of nuclear weapons, he was worried that if we saw, we framed the world as unfriendly, then we would naturally see everyone as our adversary and we would arm ourselves to the teeth. And with nuclear weapons, we would put an end to life on Earth. Uh, we would react at the first provocation. If, however, we can see the universe as basically friendly, even in the midst of adversity, that you know life is basically on our side. You know, if we can choose, it's it's a matter of choice. You know, we can choose to see. Who knows what the universe actually is? But we can choose to see life as basically friendly. Then we're likely to treat others as potential partners rather than as implacable adversaries, and we're much more likely to be able to get to us. And I think the point you have just brought up is probably one of the most valuable tools that we can use for life, to have a happy life. That if we have the ability to reframe our circumstances, to see challenges as opportunities, to know that there is a solution for every problem, we are going to just have a much better um, adventure going through this, this thing we call life. Absolutely. And if I can just give a, a kind of a quick personal example from my family, um, to me, one of the best teachers of this is my 16-year-old daughter, Gabby. I mean, she she was born 16 years ago with an enormous number of congenital structural anomalies in her body that affected her legs, her organs, and so on. She went through 15 major surgeries. But she has never let that stop her from seeing life as basically on her side. She wakes up every day. She wants to make the best of it, have fun, and she doesn't let anything get in her way. And like, for example, a year ago, she announced to us, you know, she always wanted to be in the Guinness Book of World Records. And she said she was going to go for the Guinness World Record for the plank. Do you know what the plank is? It's a... Um, no, it's a, I, a it, yoga it's a, pose. It's a yoga <laughs> pose. It's, it's a yoga pose where you kind of you know, stretch out your body on the ground, you lift it up on your elbows and you try to hold it rigid for as long as you can. And I can do it for about a minute or two. Gavi sent away for the world record for women, which at that moment was 40 minutes. And she went into training and, you know, and by, by golly, on her birthday, on her 16th birthday, her birthday party surrounded by everyone, if she didn't go for an hour and 20 minutes, and she is now in the Guinness Book of World Records. 
I mean, that's her ability to reframe, to reframe life as being on her side. No obstacles in the way. Wow. This is a fantastic story. And we need to bottle your daughter's uh, determination and, and, and joy because this is, this is serious. This is exactly what we're talking about. That's it. And if you want, she has a, a TED Talk. You just uh, Google Gabi, G-A-B-I, Yuri, U-R-Y, and TED Talk, and you'll see her own account of her own story. But it's, it's a wonderful example of the ability to reframe. Let's give Gabby Yuri another plug here, the TED Talk. Uh, and what's the name of her talk? Uh, it's called What's Wrong With Me? Absolutely Nothing. Wow. Fantastic. I'm writing it down. What's wrong with me? Absolutely nothing. I would say it's, you know, and the reframe is to now ask what's right with me. You know, that's maybe it. that's, that's where we're headed in this conversation, you know? That's it. So we've got reframing the picture and now staying in the zone more easily said than done, I think. Absolutely. But, you know, athletes, artists know that, you know, there's a state of flow when you're at your best, when you're at your happiest and and that applies also to daily negotiation with others. That's uh, if we're able to stay in the zone. And what that means is in, in, in negotiation and conflicts generally, we focus often on the past. You did this. You did that. You know, past resentments and so on. Or we focus on the future. You know, we're worried that the other person is going to do this. And yet the only place where we can actually affect the situation for the better is in the present moment. So our ability to do all the previous steps, to go to the balcony, which puts you in a kind of zone, the ability to put ourselves in our own shoes, the ability to develop our own inner Batman and have that inner confidence, the ability to reframe, actually prepares us to do what is, as you mentioned, very difficult, which is to stay in the zone, that place of power and presence and satisfaction that allows us to do our best. I think we should mention something about the, the importance of staying in the zone or staying in the present moment. And when I work with clients, I mention this and their eyes always light up when I share that 99.9 tenths percent of the time, the present moment is actually okay. Okay to good or great. That's it. That's absolutely it. Because, uh, you know, our problems are either in the past or in their imagined future but they're rarely in that exact moment of the present. Which is, the, which makes the present moment, you know, they say, well, it's the gift. You know, that's why they, you know, they call it the present, you know, and it is safe. And when we can remind ourselves that, especially when we are negotiating with ourselves or with others, I think that that does um, leverage our ability to be more clear. Absolutely. I mean, that's to me, if, if there's a lesson I've learned in life, it may be that it's like, you know, in life, we're destined to lose many, many things, you know, everything, practically, including our own lives, ultimately. But one thing, make sure not to lose, which is the present, because that's nothing else is worth it. Yeah, I, I agree. Okay, moving on. How about respect? It makes me want to like, you know, shout out that Aretha song. You know, how important is respect to this equation of getting to yes with ourselves? Well, you know, this is one of the things I've learned in my, you know, many, many decades of working with human beings in conflict is that, um, is that something as elemental as respect, respecting the other, um, you know, giving them positive regard 
doesn't mean necessarily agreeing with them. It doesn't mean doing what they want. It doesn't mean obeying them. It just means kind of recognizing their basic dignity. That that may be the cheapest concession you can make in a negotiation. It costs you nothing, and it means everything to them. And so what makes it hard for us to give that basic respect to others, uh, you know, when they may not be respecting us, whatever it is, is what gives us that ability is if we can give ourselves respect. Uh, Respect begins with self-respect. And all of these steps up to now have been about giving us that self-respect, that self-satisfaction, that self-sufficiency that then allows us to, to change the game from, you know, they reject us, we reject them, they disrespect us, we disrespect them. No, someone's got to change that game, and it can be us. If we start respecting them, they're more likely to be able to respect us. Mm. I'm thinking of the work of Dr. Carl Rogers, who, for many people who may not know, was one of the first humanistic psychologists. And in the 60s, I think it was he who coined the phrase the of, of unconditional positive regard, of holding that space of respect for another person simply because they are alive, simply because they are here. I Yeah, it's absolutely true. I had the great privilege of knowing him and uh, working with him at one moment, and uh, and he he exemplified that, that very simple but powerful human principle of giving the other unconditional positive regard, respect. Respect means to look again, to give the other person a second look, to actually see the human being behind the words, behind the feelings, behind the bad behavior, whatever, see the human being there. And this is the the, the sweet spot in all of this, where it ties back into what we mentioned when we opened the show about that interconnectedness and interdependence on one another, that when we can see that little light in the other person, although we may not agree with them, and even when we're negotiating with our own self, um, we can soften because our desires are more universal. We're more aligned than not, actually, in what we want from our lives. That's it. That's absolutely it. And then you go on to talk about the importance of giving and receiving, creating a cooperative dynamic. Yeah, this is the key because so often, you know, when we feel things are scarce, you know, we tend, our instinct is to take, take. And yet it's exact opposite move that's required to change the game, which is to give. In other words, to give our gifts, give our talents, uh, help the other side. If we can help the other side, they're more likely to be able to help us. And we begin a virtuous circle of giving and receiving that allows us to go for more than a win-win. Because to me, the, the ultimate goal is to go for a triple win, a win-win-win. In other words, a win for yourself and your own happiness, a win for the other, but also a win for the larger whole, whether that's the family, the workplace, the community, or ultimately the world. And the key to doing that is the art of cultivating the art of giving, of actually reaching out, cooperating with the other side. And that's not easy in in a lot of situations, but it's but all the steps up till now, being able to go to the balcony, develop, put yourself in your shoes, develop your inner batna, reframing, staying in the zone, respecting the other, set us up to do the ultimate, which is to go for a win-win-win outcome that is good for everyone. 
And this leads us to the ultimate goal, which is the generosity of spirit and the strength of heart. That's it. That's that. That's it. It's uh, and, it, and it goes back to what you said in the very beginning, which is happiness. True happiness is something that's not selfish. It's actually something that includes us, includes our own satisfaction, but actually is the most wonderful gift we can give others because it's more likely we're more likely to get to yes with them. They're more likely to be happy, and everyone is more likely to be happy. And you know that starting with that inner happiness, that inner peace is maybe the best tool to get to outer peace. Mm. Beautifully said. William Urey, to learn more, please visit www.williamurey.com on Facebook, William Urey GTY, and on Twitter at William Urey GTY. Oh, my goodness. The newest book is Getting to Yes with Yourself and Other Worthy Opponents. Run, don't walk to buy this book. I, I am going to be doing the same. William, you are a delight. Thank you for joining us on Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. A real pleasure, Lisa. And I wish you and all your listeners much success in getting to yes with yourself and others. We're going to take a break and we'll be right back. And that's a promise. Nothing gives happiness like a free gift. Unwrap your present by signing up for Happiness Headlines, our monthly e-zine at harvestinghappiness.com. Stay tuned for more after the break. One thing I know for certain, happiness waits for no one, and sometimes we all need support. We all have the freedom to be happy or the liberty to be miserable each day, regardless of external circumstance. Sure, things will inevitably happen in our lives that are out of our control. There is only ever one thing that is totally within our control, ourselves. When we have command of ourselves, we are better prepared to handle life and bounce back more quickly when challenges arise. Whether you see the glass as half empty or half full, the glass has the capacity to hold more. You have the capacity to be happier. The tool to harvesting your happiness is within your grasp. Are we happy yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life is available at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, IndieBound, and HarvestingHappiness.com. Each day, we get to choose how we are going to show up for life. And at times, we need tips for strengthening our well-being. Learn training strategies for greater emotional fitness and improved mental muscle tone at HarvestingHappiness.com. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. If you're just joining us now, I urge you to download and share this episode. Why? Because sharing is caring. It's kind. It's free. It's legal. It's available 24-7. And we're talking about having it all and being super productive without running yourself ragged. My next guest is Charles Duhigg. And this episode originally aired in 2016. Let's join the conversation with Charles Duhigg. My guest is Charles Duhigg, who is a Pulitzer Prize-winning investigative reporter for the New York Times and author of The Power of Habit, and not so coincidentally, Smarter, Faster, Better as well. He is a winner of the National Academies of Sciences, National Journalism, and George Polk Awards, a graduate of Harvard Business School and Yale College. He lives in Brooklyn with his wife and two children. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I apologize for coughing at exactly the time I was supposed to say say hello. No, but thanks for having me. 
It's perfect. It's authentic. (laughs) (laughs) It's all good. No, no worries. This is this is the beauty of podcasting, right? Exactly. Exactly. We could be loose. We could choose to cut it out or we could just keep talking because it's real. (laughs) Well, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Uh, We are delighted to have you. So let's talk about team building principles. And you mentioned in your book that Google and Saturday Night Live succeeded by using some similar skills. That's exactly right. So so a couple of years ago, about five years ago, Google started a project where they were trying to figure out how to build the perfect team. And they had this hypothesis going in, and this project ended up taking about four years and millions of dollars. And their hypothesis initially was the best teams are ones where you put the right people together. So maybe, and this is what they wanted to test, maybe you need a combination of introverts and extroverts, or maybe you need a, um, you know, people who are friends away from the conference table so they all know each other pretty well. And for about two years, they looked at that. They, they studied all of the teams in Google. They, they ran all these complicated al- algorithms and, and analytics. And what they ended up figuring out is that who is on a team doesn't actually matter very much. As long as people have sort of basic competence, who is on a team matters much, much less than how a team interacts. And in particular, what are the group norms or the culture that emerges on that team? And as they started looking at the different norms of groups across Google, what they discovered is that there were some that mattered more than others. And in particular, there were behaviors that seemed to be critically important, which within the academic literature are known as establishing psychological safety. Psychological safety is like that feeling you have when you feel like you can take risks on a team, when you can, you can speak your mind and people won't hold it against you, when you can b- voice ideas and you can be critical of each other, but nobody's going to take that criticism away from the conference table and, and you know, turn it into a personal gripe. But then this raises the question, how do we actually build psychological safety? Because all of us would like to be on a team that has psychological safety, but how does it occur? And so Google mm-hmm. started looking at, at some of the research that had been done, and what they found is that the research said that there's two things in particular that seem critical for establishing psychological safety. The first is what's known as equality in conversational turn-taking, or basically, does everyone on a team get a chance to speak up? And second of all is what's known as high social sensitivity, or or essentially ostentatious listening skills. Do people listen to each other in ways that they show that they're listening? Do they pick up on nonverbal cues? When someone looks like they're kind of you know, not so into an idea that's being discussed, does, does the group leader say, hey, John, I, know that you're, I notice that your arms are crossed and you don't really look into, this, into what we're talking about. Tell me what's going on inside your head. If you have those two things, if you have this, this, this culture where everyone feels like they can speak up, and where people are showing almost ostentatiously that they're listening to each other and sensitive to each other's thoughts and feelings, then you get psychological safety. And honestly, once you have psychological safety on a team, that team becomes much, much more effective, almost irregardless of who is on the team, as long as those people have basic competent skills. Fabulous. And Saturday Night Live also employs this method. That, well, that's exactly right. So what's interesting is when you think about it, it's interesting that Saturday Night Live is successful because 
there is so much about Saturday Night Live that should make that show fall apart, right? You've got a, <laughs> a, a crew full of comedians who are not known oftentimes for their um, happy people skills. You have all these writers. It's a, it's a live show that's put together in a week, and they do it week after week after week. You have a, a, a guest star who doesn't know any of these people who comes into this environment and has to sort of like suddenly start understanding what's going on. Saturday Night Live should be a disaster, but it's a huge success. And the reason why it's a huge success, if you talk to people who've worked on the show, is they'll tell you because of Lorne Michaels, the executive producer of Saturday Night Live. Because the way that Lorne Michaels runs these meetings is he does these things that create psychological safety. First of all, he forces everyone to speak up. If you're at that writer's table, you cannot get through a meeting without Lorne forcing you to talk about something. And second of all, Lorne almost ostentatiously demonstrates this listening behavior. He'll do things like, like stop a meeting halfway through and say, hey, you know, Jim, Jim, you look like you're kind of distracted. Like, like what's going on at home? Are you doing okay? Are you, are you in a fight with your wife? Is anything happening? Or, or Susan, you look like you're really, really excited about this idea that we're talking about. T- tell, me, tell me why you're excited. What makes you excited about it? He demonstrates this listening behavior that other people echo or mirror. And in doing so, he creates this environment of psychological safety that's incredibly powerful. You bring up something so important with the psychological safety because that is a huge catalyst for shift or lack of it sometimes. I mean, sometimes it can be the other way around, right? When we feel that we don't possess that that psychological safety, whether it's in a professional atmosphere within our personal lives – um, we were like, we got to get out of here. We got to get out of Dodge. How are we going to make this happen? I think that's exactly right. I think that having psychological safety is is critical to making a change because otherwise it's very hard to feel like we can take that risk, like we can expose ourselves that way. And so we need to we need to have a safety net, which is basically feeling like even if we if we try something and flop, that the people around us that they won't hold it against us or blame us for it. It's really important. What about what we can learn from Marines and nursing home residents? Because here's a, here's a well, contrast that will definitely heighten awareness, right? Yeah, so, the, so one of the chapters in Smarter, Faster, Better looks at the science of self-motivation. And it basically asks this question of why are some people better at self-motivating than others? And And what we've learned is that the parts of our neurology that are associated with self-motivation, they tend to be triggered when we feel like we're in control, when we feel like we're able to make choices that put us in charge of our own destiny. And so the Marines is a kind of interesting example because the Marines were trying to basically figure out how to teach recruits more self-control, more self-motivation. And this started about uh, about 18 years ago. There was a, a new head of the Marines. Uh, the position is called the com- commandant, commandant, who came commandant. in named Charles Krulak. <laughs> commandant, right, named Charles Krulak. And Charles Krulak knew that he had to change how boot camp functioned because they were getting a whole, rec- a whole group of recruits who were – who were particularly bad at self-motivation. They, a lot of them had never belonged to sports teams. They really hadn't done much with their lives. They, they would get to, to, basic, to, to boot camp, and they would kind of just 
wash out in unusually large numbers or, or would be apathetic. And so they knew that they needed to change boot camp in order to, to spark a feeling of self-motivation. Now, Charles Kulik had actually looked at a lot of the research that had been done on self-motivation. And one of the things he had found was that Marines who tend to do best, who seem to have this like, ability to self-start and, and be really sort of go-getters, they tended to score high in what's known as an internal locus of control. And an internal locus of control is a concept in psychology of a spectrum where everyone falls somewhere on the spectrum from external locus of control to internal locus of control. If you have an external locus of control, you believe that you don't have much control over your destiny. You, you, we all know people like this, right? People who say, you know, I wanted to get a new job, but my boss is too mean to me, and I'm never lucky, and things never go my way, and so I didn't really try that hard. That's an external locus of control. An internal locus of control is people who believe that they can control their own destiny through the choices that they make. These are the types of people who say, you know, I, I'm gonna, there's a mountain there. I'm going to go climb it. Like I'm going to figure out a way to get to the top of that mountain because I'm in control of what happens to me. The Marines that, had the, that did best were ones with an internal locus of control. And so Krulak's goal was to change boot camp to teach recruits how to have this internal locus of control. We are going to need to take a break. And when we come back, we're going to continue the conversation about internal versus external locus of control with Charles Duhigg. The book is the new book is Smarter, Faster, Better. To learn more about Charles Duhigg and his work, please visit charlesduhigg.com. On Facebook, that page is Charles Duhigg. And on Twitter, the handle is at the letter C Duhigg. Who says money can't buy happiness? Check out Lisa's new book, Are We Happy Yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life, and other fun, fashionable, and inspiring items at shophappy at harvestinghappiness.com. We'll be right back after this quick break. Do you find yourself saying things like, I'll be happy when, or I'll be happy if? Does the finish line for happiness keep moving? Does the bar keep getting higher? What's getting in the way of your happiness right now? Too much going on? Working too much? Not working enough? Having too many responsibilities? Not having enough money? Enough time? Enough space? The list goes on and on. It becomes difficult to see all that we have if we focus on scarcity. One thing I know for certain, happiness waits for no one. And sometimes we all need support. Are We Happy Yet? is not another self-help book. It's a guidebook for learning how to harvest happiness through self-mastery, which is the key ingredient into building resilience, hardiness, grit, and emotional stability. Are We Happy Yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life is available at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, IndieBound, and HarvestingHappiness.com. Each day, we get to choose how we are going to show up for life. And at times, we need tips for strengthening our well-being. Learn training strategies for greater emotional fitness and improved mental muscle tone at HarvestingHappiness.com. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. We're continuing the conversation with Charles Duhigg about having it all and being super productive without running yourself ragged. This episode originally aired in 2016. Let's rejoin the conversation. And I'm talking with Charles Duhigg about his new book, 
smarter, faster, better. Prior to the break, we were talking about internal versus external locus of control and how that relates to our productivity, how it relates to our ability to work well with others and work well in the world. So Charles, let's talk a little bit about um, an inspiration that you had in terms of writing your latest book, Smarter, Better, Faster, about stretch and smart goals from GE and Israel's Yom Kippur War. This is interesting. This 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 really interests me. Well, so this is one of the things that we know. So one of the chapters in Smarter, Faster, Better is about goal setting. Because one of the things that we know is that the most productive people, they tend to set goals a little bit differently from everyone else. And, and this can be evidenced in kind of how they write to-do lists, right? It, it, to give you an example, m- most people write to-do lists as just a list of tasks, sort of a, an external memory aid. Um, and in fact, when I used to write to-do lists before I, I did this research, um, I would, I would you know, sometimes just write a bunch of things down. Sometimes at the top of my list, I'd put my easiest tasks because it feels so good to cross them off at the end of the day. Sometimes <laughs> so fact, true. Many other people would do <laughs> I do this, that. Is, yeah, exactly. Sometimes actually I would write down things I had already done because it felt great to be able to check it off as soon as I sat down. Yeah. And, and when psychologists look at that, what they say is that's using a to-do list for mood repair, not for productivity. So the way that the most productive people use to-do lists is that at the top of the page, they tend to write a stretch goal, their biggest ambition for today or for this week or for this month. And then under that, they write down a specific plan, what's often referred to as a SMART goal because it's specific and it's measurable and it's achievable and realistic and there's a timeline, but a specific plan that takes that big stretch ambition, that big stretch goal, and breaks it into smaller pieces. Now, the reason why that's important is because by in doing that, people use their to-do list not as just a memory aid, but rather as a system that forces them to think about their priorities. Because when I look down at a to-do list, and this is what I do every day now, is I have a, a to-do list with my stretch goal at the top of it. When I look down at that list, I, it forces me to ask myself, is what I'm doing right now, does it line up with my biggest goal and aspiration? And if the answer is no, then that sort of suggests I should be doing something else. The truth is it's so easy to fall into this, this reactive mindset, this trap where we're just crossing things off our list because it feels so good to get something accomplished, that we don't have time to stop and think, am I doing the most important thing? Am I doing things that actually make a difference in my life? And in many ways, that's the difference between being busy and being productive. It's very easy to be busy, and our brain loves being busy. But being productive is about finding ways to force a little bit more contemplation into our life. And usually we do that through some device, like a to-do list or some type of you know, taking 10 minutes uh, during a commute and visualizing our day, trying to figure out what do I want to get done today? What's my biggest aspiration? These devices, which are known as contemplative devices, they're ways to force more thinking into our life. And in doing so, we end up being more productive. This is fascinating. And, and I'm writing notes as, just as fast as I can here. I mean, I'm, I'm going to definitely listen to this multiple times over, but one thing you said I really like, and that is the uh, the stretch goal. <clears throat> Excuse me, at the starting the top of the list with something that may be a little bit of a reach, and then I'm assuming that what follows on that list are what one is willing to do to work towards that goal that day. 
Well, yeah, I think that's right. And, and more importantly, can you, can you craft that as a plan? Right, because the truth of the matter is that a stretch goal is great, but on its own, it can be a little overwhelming because we don't know where to start. By its very definition, a stretch goal is something that's, that's big. It's kind of scary. And so what we need to do is we need to break that into a plan. So not only what am I willing today to do today, but can I figure out how to make it tangible? And that, this is why SMART goals is a system for breaking yes. something big into, into a plan is because you say specifically – Specifically, what do I want to get done this morning? How am I going to measure success? Is this achievable? Let me do a gut check to make sure that I can actually get this done. And, and how do I make it realistic? Well, do I need to like, turn off my email for 90 minutes? Do I need to close my door so people don't bother me? And then what's the timeline for getting this specific goal done? So it's S-M-A-R-T. It's just an easy way to remember sort of all these things to think about. But the point is that you take this big ambition and you break it down into something that's actually tangible and real to get started on this morning. And once you've done that, once you've gone through that exercise, which only takes like a minute or two, you, you know where to start. And starting is often the hardest part. Indeed. With one bite sometimes, you know, you just got to take a bite. One. That's exactly right. Um, talk about the Israel's Yom Kippur War. And NGE and how how they work together in, in what you've observed and what you actually do and how you implemented this in writing your own book. Well, so um, so the so the the Israel Yom Kippur War sort of the lesson there is that during the Yom Kippur in the lead up to the Yom Kippur War, um, there was a guy named Eli Zira who was the head of military intelligence, and although the, there were many warnings that Egypt and Syria were about to ta- attack Israel, Eli Zira, in this, in this desire to, to kind of not have to reopen old debates, essentially was blind to all the warning signs that were around him. And as a result, Israel was completely unprepared for when the Yom Kippur attacks occurred. Um, but the lesson there is really about goals, right, like about building systems to, to force us to ask, am I focused on the right thing? Am I, am I paying attention to the thing that matters most, or am I in my quest to get something done, to feel accomplished, to, to, to feel pro- busy rather than actually being productive? Am I just sort of checking something off my list and saying, oh, we don't need to look, look at what Syria and Egypt are doing again, because we've already settled that question. We think they're not going to attack. Hmm. Um, and the way that I use this in my own life is, you know, I sort of write my to-do list this way. I have... I have a to-do list every day, and I write it every morning. Then I put my stretch goal at the top of my list because what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to push myself to think, is this my highest and best priority? Am I really spending my time working on the thing that's most important to me, or am I simply chasing that feeling of being busy because it feels good, but it actually doesn't get the most important things done? I I like what you said here. And for me, I I am a huge list maker and I tend to do it. I do mine at night because I want to dump my brain because I feel like if I get into bed without making the list, that I'll start to ruminate on the list, which will take me away from catching the wave to sleep. So it's a self-defense method. Yeah. And I think that makes a lot of sense. I think that, I think that offloading your memory into, in, into a piece of paper, it's really, really helpful. But then the question is, how do you take that and make that something that helps you think a little bit deeper about what's most important? 
well, therein lies that stretch goal at the top, you know, the, the need to add that exactly component. Right. And, and I do like that because it challenges us to take a step out of our comfort zone to add a little tiny bit of constructive stress because that's where the shift happens. That's exactly right. Yeah, no, it's really important. It's really important. People think, oh, I don't want stress. I don't want stress. No, we don't want aggravation, but we need stress. Yeah, and I think that – right. So, so I think the way that psychologists often talk about this is they talk about um, the, the tension. So you stress and distress, right, that, that there is oftentimes a tension that is very, very positive. And, and sometimes that becomes anxiety, and that's negative. But the anxiety oftentimes has to do with the fact that we can't predict the future, that, we're, that there is an unknown. So putting a stretch goal at the top of your to-do list, that can create a tension, right? Because it might be something that you don't know exactly how you're going to get to that goal. You, you don't know exactly what the path, the path, every step of the path looks like. But by writing it down and by working through at least what the first step looks like, where you're going to start – then that oftentimes re- re- removes the anxiety and you get the positive aspect of the tension. I get it. It makes perfect sense. And tension, I think, is the, is the operative word here. <clears throat> By creating that little teeny bit of tension, you're going to have to tug one way or the other, right? I think that's right. That's exactly right. You can't stay the same. You cannot remain in homeostasis when there's tension. It's impossible. Yeah. Yeah, and, and and hopefully you have to think a little bit more. And do. Sometimes you have to turn off the thinking and start the doing. That's the other thing, you know, about human nature I've come to learn. Yes, I think that's exactly right. So tell us what inspired you to write Smarter, Faster, Better. Pa- the Power of Habit was the first book, and then you moved to Smarter, Faster, Better. What What catalyzed you? What was the thought process? What did you want us to know? Well, I, I think that in many ways I was sort of um, confused by why I didn't feel more productive. You know, I, I, I had written The Power of Habit, which is about the science of habit formation, and, and it was doing fairly well. It was a lot of people were reading it, and I was really lucky in that respect. Um, and, and I was working on a series at The New York Times um, about Apple and about working conditions in Chinese factories and, and other issues around Apple that went on to win the Pulitzer Prize. And so, so co- in a career perspective, things were going really, really successfully, and, and it, was, it was a great time in theory. And I would come home and talk to my wife, and I would say, you know, if this, if this is what success is like, then, like, sign me back up for failure. This is just, like, this is awesome <laughs> because I would get home – and I would have 150 emails to deal with that night. And I would have, you know, five things I had started working on earlier in the day and hadn't gotten done. And, and all the things that mattered to me the most were the things that were far, falling farther and farther behind on my, on my list of priorities. And so I wanted to figure out, like, why do some people seem to get so much more done than everyone else? Why do some companies seem to be so much more successful? And, and so I started reaching out to researchers and asking them, what do we know about those folks that seem so productive? And what the researchers said is, is well, it's, it's true. There are some people who are more productive than others. There, there are clearly people who, who get more done and more important things done. But it's not because they're working harder that they're making more sacrifices or they're chaining themselves to their desks. It's because they think differently than everyone else. They push themselves to think just half an inch deeper about 
the, their priorities and how they set their goals, how they self-motivate themselves, how they sharpen their focus so they're not distracted at work. We but are out of time. These... I cannot believe it. And okay. so that means you'll have to come back and hang out with me at another point and talk more about this Absolutely. because it's really important. You're offering s- such wisdom and strategy for getting things done, you know, to, to move it. That book name is Smarter, Faster, Better. To learn more about Charles Duhigg, please visit charlesduhigg.com. On Facebook, that page is Charles Duhigg. And on Twitter, the handle is the letter C Duhigg. So once again, at C Duhigg. Charles, thank you for for hanging out with me. Thanks for having me. A pleasure. We have flown through another hour of purpose-driven media designed to inspire and delight you, our listeners, to create more joy in your lives and within your communities. Here are a few thoughts before we part. Happiness is not a destination. It cannot be bought, sold, or traded. Happiness will never invite you to the party. It simply comes down to a choice to show up each and every day in the world with passion, purpose, place, and meaning. Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. This is Lisa Cypress-Kamen and my guests today, William Urie and Charles Duhigg, wishing you kind thoughts, kinder words, and the kindest of actions. Until next time, remember, happiness is an inside job. Happiness is your inside job. Go out and rock your day. Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio with Lisa Cypress-Kamen. Join us each and every Wednesday for a brand new episode of consciously curated talk radio from the heart. Keep harvesting your own happiness anytime from the comfort of wherever you are with hundreds of free downloadable podcasts from our libraries on Tokinet, iTunes, and SoundCloud. In a complicated world seemingly driven by nonstop negative news, Lisa's mission is to celebrate the upside of life and seek the silver lining of our challenges by transforming them into uplifting growth opportunities for all. To learn more about Lisa's global consulting services, please visit HarvestingHappiness.com. Spread more joy by liking us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and following Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen. Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio is produced in collaboration with Toginet Radio, KBUU, RadioMalibu.net, and is available on PRX, the public radio exchange.